Well, our text today, getting back to the sermon, is Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you, as always, to keep them open. I know it's only a few verses, but it'll help you to look at individual words and phrases if you're following along. If you don't have a Bible with you, but would like to follow along, uh, you can use the Bible in front of you, underneath the seat. You'll find our passage on page 980 of that Bible. I'll begin at the beginning again, just to set the context. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So as we look at these three verses, uh, I think a good way to... Now, this, uh, these three verses in Greek are very complex. Oftentimes, uh, you'll find that, those of you who, who know Greek or study Greek, if you've ever tried to read some of Paul's letters... He has incredibly long sentences uh, that are very complex, and, and, and sometimes it's hard to kind of ferret out exactly what he's saying. But I think, I think I got it this week. So I think if we're looking at these three verses, this is the way that I think he's presenting, that this prayer is going. All right, I'm going to sum it up here, and then we'll go through it. Verse 9, he is praying about God's gift to the Philippians. Verses 10 and 11 are the practical outcomes of God's gift to the Philippians. And verse 11, well, specifically the, the second half or the last part of verse 11, is the end goal of God's gift to the Philippians. So first, in verse 9, we'll see that he's talking about God's gift to the Philippians. He says... It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now we can see here, uh, again, this is the petition part. He's asking God for something. He's praying for what he wants to see in the Philippians. But notice something I think is interesting here. And I, I want to just camp out here for a little bit and just kind of look at the nature of prayer itself. Before we, before we kind of look further at, at specifically what he's praying for. Notice, first of all, just the fact that Paul is praying. Paul is praying for 
things that he has already stated he is absolutely certain God is going to accomplish. If you go back to verse 6, he says, I am sure of this. I am totally confident, I am utterly certain that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is the one who began the good work there in the church. He's the one that opened the heart of of Lydia. He's the one that, that brought the Philippian jailer to salvation. He is the one that opens the heart of anyone that comes to faith in Christ. Prior to God's work in our heart and the, and the what we call irresistible grace of God, we are, Scripture says, dead in our sins and trespasses, unable to please God. We don't understand the things of God until God opens our eyes. And, and Paul says not only that God began this good work in you, but I know for a fact that he's going to bring this good work to completion. You're not going to stay languishing at a certain level and never enter into glory, but that God is going to complete what he has begun. Paul's certain of this. He has complete confidence, and yet, despite the complete confidence, he prays that it's going to happen. I mean, that's why I want to slow down here for a minute, because I think we can just skip over this. Now, you could ask yourself, why pray? Why pray if God is in complete command and control of the future? Well, I said a couple of weeks ago uh, that in one sense, it is only a sovereign and all-powerful being who can answer prayer. I mean, on one level, it makes no sense whatsoever to offer up prayer to an impotent God who cannot answer the prayer. If we don't believe God is all-powerful and sovereign, then why are we asking him to do anything? I mean, we may as well ask the little old lady that lives across the street to, you know, bring world peace if, if we don't think God can do these things. So logically speaking, it makes on, only makes sense to pray to an all-powerful God who can do what we ask him to do. But I think generally we, we do understand that. And so our question, I think, when we say, well, why pray, is does my prayer really matter? I mean, I, I know I've asked myself this. If God is sovereign and all-powerful, if he's already determined the end from the beginning, then what is my puny, limited prayer based on my own pea brain uh, knowledge of the world and of human history and of what God is doing in the world, what difference is it going to make? What will it accomplish? I think the first answer to that is really simple, which is that God commands us to pray and he invites us to pray. Over and over again, we see in Scripture that God commands and invites us to pray. And so on one level, in one sense, that's the only answer we need. We don't really need any other answer as to why pray other than that God tells us to. However, it's more than that. God not only tells us to pray, not only invites us to pray, but he tells us in his word in many ways that our prayers do matter. He doesn't, I, I mean, it, 
on, on, one, on the one hand, and, and if this were the case, even if God commanded us to do something that in the long run didn't make any difference, if he commanded us to do something that in the grand scheme of, of the universe uh, didn't matter at all, then it still should be enough for us to do it because he told us to do it. However, God tells us specifically things like we have not because we ask not. That's from James, what you just went through over the summer. He tells us specifically that the prayers of a righteous man accomplishes much. Well, how does it then? How do our prayers work? Well, again, that could be a 15-sermon series on prayer. So I'm not going to answer everything right now in five minutes. But one thing I think that's important to understand is that our prayers change things. Our prayers do not change God. God is what we call immutable. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. More than that, God cannot change. It is not in God's nature, God being who he is, to change If God were to change, he would cease to be God. And that's actually really good news. You think about it, I would hate it. I mean, on the surface, I might love it if I could twist God's arm with my prayer and make him do what I wanted to do, even though he didn't really want to do it. I mean, that might make me kind of in the moment happy, but in the long run, how horrible would that be? If I, with my fallen, sinful, selfish tendencies, with no eye to how all of human history is being brought to completion, could actually, with my horrible prayer, selfish prayer, make God do something that I want him to do, that it's outside of his own good and sovereign will. I'm, on that, in that sense, very glad that I can't change God's mind. However, Here's the important part. Anything else can change. There's God, who is the creator and the unchangeable one, and then there's everything else, and everything else is creation. And everything else in creation is mutable. Everything else in creation is changeable. What what that means is that anything in creation is subject to change. That means that your heart is subject to change. That means that the heart of a loved one that you care about is subject to change. That means that governments are subject to change. Uh, Kings and rulers are subject to change. That means this church is subject to change. It means that uh, anything in all of creation that you could pray for is subject to change. A million things. You can literally pray for God to alter everything anything in creation because everything in creation is changeable. R.C. Sproul says this, the prayer of his people is one of the means that God uses to bring things to pass in this world. God uses secondary means to, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, prayer being primary. So Sproul says, so if you ask me whether prayer changes things, I answer with an unhesitating yes. And that is exactly 
what we see Paul and what we see Jesus before him demonstrating. Both Jesus and Paul uh, are huge proponents of God's omnipotence and his unchangeableness. They had complete confidence that God is going to accomplish his will and do what he has purposed, and yet both of them pray all the time. Jesus was God in the flesh, and yet he went away time and time and time again to pray and ask God for the things that he wanted. Paul knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will ultimately and completely transform the Philippian saints, that he will complete what he began, and yet he also knows that God will bring these things to pass through the means of prayer. And so he prays. Notice, secondly, though, not only that Paul prays, but notice what he prays for. He says, it's my prayer, dear Philippians, and to us as well, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And as I read that prayer this week, and as I studied it this week, I asked myself, is that what my prayer typically sounds like? Christian, just ask yourself that. Is that what you typically pray for? When you are in a small group or a Bible study and and it is asked, does anyone have any prayer requests? Are those the requests that usually come out? Take notice of it. I'm sure those of you who have been in them before, you, you, you know what is generally asked. Generally, The prayers that are requested are for ours or someone else's physical welfare, oftentimes. I'll just give an example here, a typical small group prayer request. We're leaving for Colorado tomorrow. Can you just pray that we get there safely? Can you just pray that the kids get along well? Can you pray that we have a great time, and you know, honestly, I know this might sound a little silly, but, but it's the first time our dog is going to be without us. We put him in a new kennel. Can you just pray that, that he would be okay, and just pray that we get home safely? That'd be great. Thank you. Okay, what would be a typical Pauline prayer? Okay, we're leaving for Colorado tomorrow. Can you please pray that while we're there, surrounded by the beauty of God's creation, that our love for Christ would grow more and more while we're there. Can you please pray that that we would see beyond the trials of this life while we're there, that, that we would focus ever more on heaven where Christ is already seated, and that our love for Christ would be reflected in the way that we treat each other while we're there. You see the difference, obviously. Christian, do your prayers or do do your prayer requests ever look like the second? Now, here's the thing. Prayers for physical health, enjoyment, safety, even prayers that your dog would enjoy the kennel are totally fine. There's nothing wrong with them. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Jesus said, pray for your daily bread. Okay? But before he instructs us to pray for our daily bread, he says, pray that God's kingdom will come. Pray that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
If your prayers don't ever sound like Paul's, then I would just encourage you to, to just read more and more through Paul's letters and just start praying according to the words you see there. I think you may find that your focus and your prayers change. Now let's look at what he asks God for. He prays that their love would abound more and more. Now notice he doesn't pray that God would give them love. He doesn't really pray that they would have love. He is praying with the understanding that they already have this love. That, that this love that, that he sees not only for God, but this love that he sees in them that he sees they have for one another, and the love that he sees that they have for him while he's languishing in prison is a love that God has already given them. It's a gift from God. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, first one. Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. First John is all about this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he is not. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We, fellow saints, love God and one another because we have experienced already the love of Christ and have already been given that love in our hearts. That's why we love. We would not love Jesus. That's one of the things that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're thinking, man, I'm really struggling with assurance. Some of us struggle with assurance. I don't know if I'm going to make it to heaven. I struggle with whether or not I'm actually saved. Oftentimes it's because we're struggling with a sin. One of the things that I like to ask those who are struggling with assurance is, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Do you want to honor him? Do you want to serve him because you love him? If that's true of you, then I believe you have the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that anyone without the Spirit's work can actually love the Lord Jesus Christ and want to serve him. <clears throat> but notice here, that Paul, understanding that God has already given them this gift of love, he's asking them to increase what he's already given to them. Now, what does Paul mean by love? Well, he doesn't mean by love here, he doesn't mean what he just said a couple of verses or a verse earlier when he said, I have this affection for you. Paul had an affection, a feeling of deep love of, of deep affection for this church. That would be more someone's feelings. But the Greek word here that he uses is, I'm sure many of you have heard this over the years, it's agape, which is not so much feelings toward someone else, but actions for the good of someone else. Now, there is a place in us for love as a feeling. Paul has already talked about it. Um, God is the one who made us to get butterflies in our stomachs around someone we love. There is a place for that kind of love. 
But what Paul is asking for, for God to increase in the church is agape love. It is love that God demonstrated when Christ died for the likes of us. What Paul is, is asking for is that God would increase sacrificial agape love in the church. This love that Paul is, is asking that God would increase is a love based on actions. Actions based on commitment and a decision to do for the other even if it's costly to you. And that's exactly what, what God demonstrated on the cross. It was, it's that word agape love, it's, it's defined by the cross of Christ, where God himself, in the form of a man, God the Son, gave himself, sacrificially gave all of himself, even to the point of death on the cross, for those least deserving of it, even though it cost him everything. We'll see in Philippians chapter 2, that that's exactly what Paul tells us we have to have among us, is the mind that was in Christ. If we look at 1 Corinthians 13, that's the, the book, that, the chapter there that in, in, in some ways defines love, we see that, that when Paul is talking about love, he says love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. So when Paul's describing love in 1 Corinthians 13, he's describing that kind of sacrificial love where you sacrifice yourself for the good of others. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy uh, preaching out of 1 Corinthians 13 when I, when I marry uh, a couple because I think it just gives us such an example and a definition of love. And I think the reason why uh, so many marriages fail today and, and, and really, uh, so many marriages fail, uh, period, uh, is because oftentimes, I think, people are marrying to satisfy their own desires. I think oftentimes people are essentially going into marriage and they're saying, I want to be happy in life. I want to be happy in life, and I think you're the one who's going to fulfill my desire to be happy. You're the one who's going to fulfill my desires, and if it turns out you're not the one to do that, then I'll leave you and find someone else who will. And that's the complete opposite of what we are called to do in marriage. And that's why, really, when you think about church membership, when you think about sacrificing for one another, if we think about Meadowcroft and we think about agape love abounding more and more here, the only way that that's possible is if church membership, if it's, if, is if membership at Meadowcroft is more and involves a lot more than membership at a local gym or a local Costco. Because you can walk into a Costco or a gym, you cannot speak to anyone there, you can get out of it what you want and you can leave. And that's generally what I do. If I go to the gym or I go to Costco, I'm not concerned about the other people there. I have a mission. I'm there to do what I want to do. I'm not there to talk to anybody. I'm not there to get to know anybody else. They might all have memberships there too, but I don't care who they are. I'm there to get out of it what I'm there to do. That's not what a church membership is, but oftentimes in today's church, that's how people treat church memberships. They slip in 
They sit and listen to a talk, and then they get out, hoping that no one notices them. While we at Meadowcroft want membership to be like what Paul is talking about. Growing all the more in agape love for one another, where we are knowing and loving and sacrificing. He says, I want your love to abound more and more, but I want it to abound with all knowledge and discernment. Knowledge here, I guess you could just sum up, is a collection of biblical truth, a real wooden way of, of, of understanding it. He wants our love, the sacrificial love, to abound and to overflow, but not indiscriminately and without knowledge. He wants us to be grounded in his word so that we know how to sacrifice well and how to do it in a, dis- in a discerning way. Paul desires that our love for one another be informed and guided by the truth of God's Word. Now, some of you may know uh, Ligonier Ministries um, with R.C. Sproul started it, and and, uh, although he's been dead for a while, they're they're continuing on with with Ligonier um, conferences and things like that. One of the things that they do every other year is they do a huge survey, not only of people who are not church, but also of people who call themselves evangelicals. And, and they come out with this report that I read just this week. It's called The State of Theology. And it's, it's actually you know, very revealing because it's one thing to read the kind of questions that they ask and read the world's answers and say, well, I, that I'm expecting. It's another thing to read these questions and see increasingly the evangelicals' answers. Uh, Because, I'll just give you an example. Question, does God change? We just talked about that. Evangelicals, nearly 50% of evangelicals say yes, God changes. Are we born innocent? 65% of evangelicals say yes. Here's the one that honestly blew me away probably more than any other. Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. 43% of evangelicals say yes. Nearly 50% of self-proclaimed evangelicals believe Jesus wasn't God. What are we believing in? If Jesus isn't God, I mean, I'm, let's close up shop. There's no reason to be here. Paul says if Jesus isn't God, we are all among all people most to be pitied. Brothers and sisters, if, if we have love without knowledge of the truth of God's word, then, then we can very easily love the wrong things. Or we can love the right things in the wrong way. God is love and God is also truth. And Christian love rejoices with the truth. Paul says he wants us to have knowledge and discernment. Discernment means knowing how to apply this agape love. What does it mean to love a fellow member in knowledge and discernment? Well, sometimes it it means encouraging them to continue what they're doing. But sometimes it means discouraging them from continuing what they're doing. How will you know the difference unless you're grounded in the truth? 
Sometimes it, it means asking forgiveness for what you've done to them, and sometimes it means rebuking them for what they've done to you or someone else. But how will you know to do that unless you have knowledge and discernment from God's Word? You'll be flying blind. So, so that's verse 9, God's gift to the Philippians. It is God's gift of love, abounding, rooted in knowledge and discernment. Verses 10 and 11 speak of the practical outcomes of God's gift. And you can see here three practical outcomes of this love rooted in knowledge and discernment. First, the ability to approve what is excellent. Secondly, becoming pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And third, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So first, Paul prays that they would have as an outcome of this the ability to approve what is excellent. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word excellent here, it means that which is superior. It means that which is worth more than something else. Now, we need the, the truth of God's word to be able to discern what is evil from what is good. We need God's word to help us to discern what is righteous from what is unbiblical, or biblical from unbiblical, or all, make all these distinctions. But Paul is saying, as you grow in this, one of the outcomes that you have is not necessarily, he's not speaking here when he says approving what is excellent, he's not speaking of the ability to make a choice between what is good and bad, biblical or unbiblical, but between what is good and what is best. The ability to make even those fine-tooth distinctions, be able to split hairs and say, both of these options are biblical, but I think this one's best for you. One New Testament scholar says this, the reason why they should, should abound in love and knowledge and depth of insight is to discern what is best. Love seeks what is best for the other person, but what is best is not always obvious. Sometimes equally attractive good options compete for first place. It is necessary to examine the options in order to approve the one that is superior to all the others. That's approving what is excellent. Secondly, though, he says, I want you to become pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, if you read that and don't quite, I mean, I, I'm not sure, I, I understand the translation. The translation's fine, but it could send us in a theologically really bad direction. Because if we read this, we could think that what Paul is saying is, I pray that essentially you would grow in good works enough that you justify yourself on judgment day. That, in essence, you be saved by your good works. I, I pray that you become pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's not what he means here. The Greek word pure means, I want you to be sincere without hidden motives. Blameless means I want you to live in such a way that you do not cause offense or you do not cause stumbling. So you can see how, how those words fit that description, but again, we don't want to take it in a wrong way. What this means, brothers and sisters, members of Meadowcroft, is that we are to live life with one another honestly. We're to live life among one another with transparency, not with, with no hidden motives. We're not trying to uh, somehow 
get one up on, on one another or somehow um, scheme or, or try to, you know, get our own way here and, and with false uh, pretenses and things like that. We're to be concerned to make decisions in such a way that we would not needlessly cause offense or cause some of our fellow members to stumble in their walk with the Lord. And he wants us to live this way. Why? Because there's a day of Christ coming. He's certain of that. This is the second time he's mentioned this day of Christ. Christ's second coming. That's where we're headed. Guaranteed. If if Christ began a good work in you, he will complete it on the day of Christ. But we're not there yet. And so... Christ has called us to live together in a local body to prepare ourselves for that day. One way to to think about it as you live your life is to say, we should live now as we will live one day. We should make it our aim to live now as we will live one day. One day, we will treat each other perfectly in love. Our aim should be to do that now knowing that that's our goal. It's already taken care of. Some other way to look at it is is we should live now as we wished we would have lived when we meet Christ on the last day. At the end of your life, when you're, if you have the privilege, in a sense, of having a deathbed and being able to reflect on your life, some of us don't have that privilege. Some of us are taken like this. If you have the opportunity to have a deathbed and to be able to reflect on your life, how would you wish you would have lived? Live that way now. Third, Paul prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ? Well, think about it. What kind of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ? The righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ is that righteousness that gives us right standing before God. The righteousness that we have from Christ is His perfect record of obedience. It's righteousness imputed to us So that when God looks at us, he sees us as he sees his son. Our justification, our being declared righteous before God's judgment seat with the gavel is not because of our own righteousness, but as Paul says, it's due to an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. So that is the righteousness that comes through Christ. The righteousness that comes through Christ is the one that saves us, the one that justifies us. So what's the fruit of that? Well, here's one way of thinking of it. The fruit of the righteousness that we have in Christ is this. Christian, if Jesus, by his righteousness, has already guaranteed heaven for you, if Jesus has already given you his righteousness so that you already right now are simultaneously justified and yet sinner. If Jesus has given you his righteousness so that even right now as, we, as I speak, as you sit here, you are already right with God and you have peace with God. If that's true of you, 
then everything else that you do for the rest of your life, you can do for the sake of others and not for your own sake. You don't have to live anymore for your own sake. That's all been taken care of. In Christ, you have everything you'll ever need. You never have to do another selfish thing for the rest of your life. Christ's righteousness, given as a gift, frees you to serve others out of sheer gratitude. You don't have to do anything anymore to win heaven. Do you know how different that thought process is from the way the world thinks you get to heaven? Every non-Christian I've ever spoken to in my life thinks that I do certain things to win heaven. They think that I go to church every Sunday to get in good with God. They think that I read the Bible and pray and wear a, a shirt that has a church logo on it and do all of these things because I'm trying to win a place in heaven. They don't understand the complete mind shift that the gospel brings. That I don't do any of these things to earn heaven. I already have it. Whatever I do, I do out of sheer gratitude for what God has given to me. Not perfectly, obviously. I fail oftentimes at this, but I'm, I'm giving you what we should be doing. See, the irony of any religion that, that basically, which is every other religion, Every other religion but the gospel tells us essentially you get to heaven by works, one way or another. And some follow a religion, and I've had conversations with them, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, that, that say to me, but if you're saved by grace through faith because of Christ alone, then you'll never do any good works. See, the irony of that statement is that the very people that told me that were telling me that, they were there at my house sharing the good news of Jehovah's Witness so that they can get to heaven. I, I, I told them that. When they, were, when they were leaving my house, I said, look, I, I, I don't agree with you. I tried to press home with them that we're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. But I said, you're presenting a gospel of works. We're not saved by works. And I said, but look, I do at least thank you that you took the time out to tell me because you cared about my soul. And rather than them just leaving it at that and saying, you're very welcome, they actually said to me, we're not sharing this with you to save you, we're sharing this with you to save us. They said, if we don't share this with so many people, we're not going to get into heaven. And I said to them, you are a living example of what I've been telling you. You're trying to work your way to heaven. If the good works that we do are done so that we can earn heaven, then they aren't good. If, if they aren't done solely for the good of others, then they're done for selfish reasons. Which brings us to the final thing that Paul is praying for, the end goal. Verse 11, that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, what is the chief end of man? Some of you know this, probably a lot of you. What is our end goal? What is our purpose for being here? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
Friend, why do you exist? Why are you alive? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do I exist rather than not? Philosophers used to ask that question all the time. You see, I think a lot of us have just gotten into the habit of living life. We take our existence for granted. We don't think about why we exist, and so we just make decisions, and we just move along in life doing whatever we feel like doing. Ultimately, what we're saying is that, that, that our purpose in life is to do what we want. The problem with that is that you didn't create yourself. You see, whatever you create, you can determine its purpose. Whatever you create, you get to purpose. My son Isaac astounds me all the time with what he creates with random Lego pieces. I'm not kidding you. I, mean, I, I don't know. I could never do it. I don't know how he does these things, uh, but he will bring this thing up and show me that he designed out of not a, a box with instructions, but scattered Lego pieces. The latest thing that he showed me like two days ago was a crossbow that actually works. It has a trigger that you can pull, and, he, and he, he, he put like a rubber band in it, and it actually shoots arrows, Lego arrows, not real arrows. Uh, but that's just the latest thing. I mean, there's always something else that blows my mind that I think I could never do that. I don't know how he does this. But, you know, <clears throat> when he brings me these things, and he shows me one after one, and he tells me what it is, he also tells me what it's for. He says, here's what I built and here's what it's for. And you know the one thing I never say to him? I say, wow, that's awesome. Isaac, that's incredible. Show me how it works. The one thing I never say to him is, but that's not what it's for. And the reason I don't tell him that is because I didn't make it. He's the only one in the world that can tell anyone what this thing is for because he made it. And friend, if you didn't create you, and if I didn't create me, then who did? Don't tell me my parents, because I've got six children, and I can tell you that there wasn't one second of their being knit together in Michelle's womb that either Michelle or I reached in and did any of the knitting. Now, our world will tell us that nothing created us. Well, to me, that's the stupidest answer. I would rather believe that I created my children than that nothing created them. You see, to me, the only logical answer to who made you is God. And if God made you, then he and only he has the right to tell you what you were made for. You don't have that right. You don't have the right to say, this is what my purpose is in life. Only he can tell you that because he made you. And friend, we, all of us, were made for only one thing. 
We were made to bring glory and honor to the one who made us. That's it. That is our goal in life. That's the end goal in life. And that, friend, is what Jesus did. Jesus spent his entire life doing nothing but what would bring glory and honor to his Father in heaven. So whatever you do in life, from this day forward, ask yourself, before you do it, will what I'm about to do bring glory to God? And if the answer is no, why do it? It goes completely against the purpose for which you were made. See, Christian, our Lord is coming back. He's coming back, and, and when he comes back, he's going to take us home. And when we're there, when we're on the new earth, we will finally, and for all eternity, live every second of our lives doing what we were made to do. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet, and so we struggle. But we look forward to that day, because on that day, Christians, Every year that we thought was wasted and every night that we cried, how long, all will be a passing moment in our Savior's victory song. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word, a light shining in a dark place. Lord, we pray that you would use this word to strengthen us in our walk home to you. We pray that now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.